Welcome to Med Together. This is a podcast by the people, for the people, as it were. My name is Khana. I'm a med student in New York. This podcast deals with a lot of med school topics, starting from the basic sciences and building its way up, and hopefully it'll be a bit of review that can help y'all consolidate and synthesize important information and maybe phrase it in a way that's easy to understand. By the way, if you're pre-med or you're a nursing student or you're just interested in science medically topics and you're not in healthcare at all, you're totally welcome to. We don't discriminate. If you're interested, you're cool. Ready to rock? Let's do this. Hello, everybody. Welcome. Today, we're going to go over some basics of DNA and RNA because these are the building blocks of everything we need to talk about going forward. Every part of the cell is coded for in the DNA, and changes in DNA are what alter how cells grow and differentiate, so this is pretty foundational. I actually had recorded some other episodes first, and then I thought back and I was like, you know what? I feel like we got to talk about DNA and RNA before we can talk about anything else. So bonus points if you can figure out which was my actual first episode. But (laughs) this for now, I think, is going to be the first episode, just because it seems the most foundational looking back at it. So a lot of what we're going to talk about today may be review, but that's really the idea, to synthesize a lot of the information that you have floating around in your brain and put it into a useful framework. So we're going to talk about what DNA and RNA are, how they're synthesized, and just a little bit about their regulation. So let's dive in with some definitions. DNA is deoxyribonucleic acid, and RNA is ribonucleic acid. What does that mean? They're both made up of nucleotides. A nucleotide is a nitrogenous base attached to a sugar, either ribose or deoxyribose, and a phosphate group. Without the phosphate group, if it's just the nitrogenous base and the sugar, they're called a nucleoside. And then with the addition of the phosphate group, they become a nucleotide. We humans have five different nitrogenous bases that make up our DNA and RNA. We have the pyrimidines, thymine, uracil, and cytosine, which are single ring structures. And we have the purines, guanine, and adenine, which are double ring structures. A mnemonic that has always been helpful for me to remember kind of which ones are which is that the purines are A and G. AG is the chemical abbreviation for gold in the periodic table, which you want to be pure. So these are the purines. It's silly, it's definitely nerdy, but it helps me check myself quickly. So if that mnemonic is useful to you, please feel free to use it. As you know, in DNA, A binds to T, G binds to C, and in RNA, U is the equivalent of T. So you're going to have U binding to A. Each DNA strand is held together by the by phosphodiester linkages of the sugar phosphate backbone. So the sugar of the first nucleotide is going to bind to the phosphate group of the next one, and so on and so forth. So the free end with a phosphate group, i.e. the first nucleotide in the chain, is called the 5' prime end. And the free end that has a sugar, i.e. the last guy in the chain, is the 3' prime end. DNA can only be synthesized in the 5 to 3 direction, meaning you can add another base onto the free sugar end, but you can't add another onto the free phosphate end, which becomes important when we're going to talk about a little later how DNA synthesis occurs. Now we know, DNA is a double helix. You have two strands of DNA twisted together, and this occurs because of base pairing. The hydrogens on the nucleotides make some areas more positive and some areas more negative, and they attract their opposites to form a hydrogen bond. The GC nucleotides form three hydrogen bonds, and AT form two hydrogen bonds, just because of their structures. And this is why, jumping ahead for a second, you may see some areas that are heavily GC in the DNA being untranslated, because these don't open up as easily. You have three hydrogen bonds to break instead of two but that is definitely uh, further down the line. Back to our point. The two strands bind in an anti-parallel fashion, which is to say that one strand is lying lying five to three and the other one lies upside down, three to five. And this always happens. There's a very predictable distance between the bases called a step of 3.4 angstroms. And there are 10 steps to a turn as the DNA twists into a right-handed helix. 
And angstrom, by the way, is a hundred millionth of a centimeter. It's a very tiny measurement, but it's a predictable amount. So you have 3.4 angstroms between bases. This space between a ba each pair of bases is called a step, and you have 10 steps to a turn. So 34 angstroms for every turn of the DNA helix. So now that we've defined kind of what DNA and RNA are, let's talk about what we use them for. We have two situations that we have to talk about, which both use DNA as a template. We have DNA synthesis, which occurs before replication and involves copying the entire genome. And we have RNA synthesis, which happens anytime you have gene expression to make new proteins. So basically all the time. We'll talk about DNA synthesis first because it's more complicated, and then we'll do RNA, and then the RNA will feel easy. So how does DNA replication actually occur? Before we actually knew the answer to that question, there were three basic models that existed. The model of conservative replication, the model of semi-conservative replication, and the model of dispersive replication. Conservative replication posited that the entire double helix was copied, so that the new cell had a completely new helix, and the old cell retained its entire old helix. Semi-conservative replication said that each strand was copied and then paired with its copy, so that the parent cell and the daughter cell each ended up with one original and one new strand. And dispersive replication was a variation on semi-conservative, which suggested that each strand was copied in bits and pieces, so that each cell ended up with kind of patches of old and patches of new on each side of the helix. It was a very classic experiment using differently weighted labeled nitrogen, which proved that DNA synthesis is indeed semi-conservative. Again, that means the helix opens up, each strand is fully copied, and then retwists with its copy, so that the parent and the daughter cell each have one old and one new strand. What happens is, the strand begins to open at a point called the replication fork by an enzyme called DNA helicase, which unwinds it, and then each strand is stabilized by single-stranded DNA binding proteins, which kind of hold that bubble open, and each strand has to be copied. DNA replication has to start with an RNA primer, because it can't just start out of nowhere. DNA can only be added to an existing 3' end. RNA does not have that problem. So RNA primase can lay down an RNA primer, which attaches to the strand and creates a free three prime end so that DNA can be added to this free end. The so-called leading strand, which is lying in the three to five direction, is the easy one because its anti-parallel copy has to be built five to three, which is the correct way. And DNA synthase can just start building DNA bases onto the template strand. The other strand, which is lying five to three, is a little more complicated because the replication has to occur three to five in order to be anti-parallel, but we just said we can't do three to five replication. So what you end up having is that instead of being copied in one smooth strand like the leading strand, the lagging strand has to be copied in little pieces with a new RNA primer laid down as the replication site unzips because it's being synthesized in the opposite direction of the unzipping. These little pieces are called Akazaki fragments and they're joined together by DNA ligase after DNA synthase removes the RNA primers, which is kind of like at the end. It goes over and takes out all the little RNA pieces and puts DNA in its place. Now's probably a good time to talk about telomeres for just a second. When you reach the end of the lagging strand, there's an RNA primer there, but once it's removed, it can't be replaced with DNA because you have a free five prime end there, which can't be added to. So you have this little stretch of template strand that's uncopied. This end is called a telomere, and it wraps back on itself to protect the free end. Now this leads to, of course, shortening of the strand, because the telomere, which was, let's say, for argument's sake, 10 base pairs, wraps around itself, and it's now 5 base pairs on each side. So in the next round of replication, the uncopied region is going to go deeper and deeper into the telomere. So telomeres shorten with every round of replication, and eventually, once a cell loses all of its telomeres, there's no protective end anymore, and the chromosome becomes unstable, and this leads to cell senescence and death. In stem cells, and incidentally in cancer cells, there's an enzyme called TERP, 
telomeres reverse transcriptase, which is a really cool enzyme that actually can create DNA from RNA. Remember, normally, the only direction we can go is DNA to RNA, but this reverse transcriptase can actually do the opposite, and it can create DNA from an RNA template, making the cells so-called immortal. So back to the DNA that we just synthesized, though. The chromosomes don't just float around freely in the cell. They live in the nucleus, which we know as chromatin, which is chromosomes wrapped around a core of positively charged histone proteins. This core is made up of an octamer of four histones. We have H2A, H2B, H3, and H4. So four different proteins, two of each, make up an octamer. And each loop of the DNA wrapped around its histone is called a nucleosome. Without getting into the weeds here, histone modification is a method of gene regulation called epigenetics. Epi meaning above genetics. So epigenetics does regulation without changing the genetic code at all. Methylation or acetylation of the DNA itself and or of the histones makes certain genes more active while others are repressed. But I digress. The more tightly packed chromatin, called heterochromatin, makes alleles inaccessible, while euchromatin is a little looser and allows for gene expression. So anytime you're having gene expression, it's coming from euchromatin. Let's talk about gene expression. If we start with the terminology, a gene is any DNA sequence that is transcribed into RNA. We're most familiar with mRNA, messenger RNA, which is used to make proteins, but there are actually other types of RNA as well. We have microRNAs, which do regulation. We have tRNAs and rRNAs, which are both involved in protein synthesis. And there are more and more things that RNA does that we keep discovering. Genes are preceded by a promoter region, which includes a TATA box, which binds the RNA polymerase. There's also a terminator at the end of the gene. And transcription factors are going to bind upstream of the promoter region. You also have these things called untranslated regions, which are found upstream and downstream of the genes, and these are transcribed. The untranslated regions can be regulatory. For example, ferritin, which is a protein that does iron storage, has an untranslated region on its mRNA that binds iron, and the protein is only translated if iron is bound to this untranslated region. So you only make as much ferritin as you need. If you don't have any iron around, you don't need any ferritin. There's nothing bound to the untranslated region, and it, the RNA doesn't get translated. The poly-A tail is coded for at the end of the gene, and termination occurs after this poly-A tail. We don't really understand the function of the tail very well. Another thing we have to discuss when we're talking about mRNA is alternative splicing. This is an important mechanism that allows for us to actually make different proteins from the same gene. There are regions of the gene called introns, which can get snipped out by spliceosomes during the mRNA processing. And then the exons, which are the pieces that are remaining, get stitched together to form mature mRNA. Interestingly, we do have some intronless genes. Certain highly conserved proteins and transcription factors don't have any introns. They're all exons, which doesn't allow for any alternative splicing. This highlights to us how important it must be for these to be exactly the same, because there's no chance of there being alternative splicing. There are no introns. So what's the process like? When it's time for a cell to do transcription, which is signaled to it by some kind of external signal usually, or internal signal, transcription initiation factors bind to the promoter region, and they recruit RNA polymerase. Usually, and I say usually because there's always exceptions, but pretty much always, only one strand of the DNA is going to be transcribed, and that's the template strand, named for obvious reasons. The other strand is called the coding strand. So this is something that always was a little bit confusing for me, so I'm going to say it slowly and explicitly. The RNA product is going to look like the coding strand because it's going to use the template strand to build itself. So therefore, it's going to look like the counterpart of the template strand. It's not going to actually look like the template strand itself. Once the transcription initiation complex is formed on the template strand, 
it phosphorylates RNA polymerase and initiates transcription. Now this is much simpler than replication. We don't need a whole team of enzymes that we had with the, with the DNA. RNA polymerase does everything by itself, and transcription is terminated when it reaches the poly A site. This early transcript, the thing that comes off looking like the coding strand, is called pre-mRNA. Then it gets processed, it gets the addition of a 5' cap, the poly A tail, the splicing like we discussed, and then finally it's mature mRNA. Once the mature mRNA is generated, it's ready for translation, which occurs at ribosomes in humans. It's important to point out that not every RNA that's transcribed gets translated. The 3' untranslated region is a binding site for microRNAs, which can bind and cleave the mRNA before it ever gets translated. This is a form of regulation. So just because something gets transcribed doesn't mean that it's actually going to get translated down the line. But if it is going to be translated, the 5' cap binds to the small subunit of the ribosome, and then it's in place to attract tRNAs or transfer RNAs, which are going to bring the amino acids. tRNA is a looped protein, and an enzyme called aminoacyl tRNA synthase covalently binds an amino acid to the 3' end of the tRNA. Then there's an anticodon region, which recognizes the corresponding codon region on the mRNA and will bind to it. The whole codon-anticodon thing can get very complicated very quickly if you overthink it. So don't overthink it. The tRNA has an anticodon, which corresponds to a specific sequence called the codon on the mRNA. The amino acid that's being carried by the tRNA is the one that's coded for by the codon, not by the anticodon. The anticodon is just there to let it bind to the codon. So there are three parts of the ribosome. You have the A site, the P site, and the E site. The mRNA enters by the A site, and that's where the tRNA binds it. Then the ribosome slides along the mRNA to the P site, where the amino acid is released onto the growing amino acid chain, and then to the E site, where the tRNA is released. This is probably a good time to mention the wobble hypothesis. We have 20 amino acids, and therefore there are 20 anticodons, because remember, each anticodon is going to make the tRNA attached to a specific amino acid. But anticodons can bind to more than one codon, because only the first two letters of the anticodon are super important and bind tightly to the codon. And with the third, there's a little bit more flexibility. This minimizes any damage caused by misreading and transcription, because there are multiple codons that can code for a single amino acid. For example, if the DNA template wanted to code for leucine, and the sequence was CUG, but was transcribed mistakenly as CUC, the anticodon for leucine could still bind, and the protein structure would be preserved. Let's touch on regulation for just a minute, because if you think about it, gene expression really defines a cell. Every cell in your body has all the same DNA, but which genes are expressed defines the function of the cell. So most of our DNA is turned off at any given time. We still have very little understanding of how cells differentiate, but somehow they have, a, they have a knowledge of their identity and their body position, and their genes are expressed accordingly. This is something that's an active area of research, and we don't really know yet how that works out. But some genes, called housekeeping genes, are always on in all cells, but most genes are either tissue-specific or stimulus-specific, like a reaction to oxidative stress, or both. Transcription factors, when they bind to a promoter region, which is, if you recall, located just upstream of a gene, will recruit RNA polymerase and cause fleeting transcription of that gene, and that's how we have genes turn on and off quickly. Enhancer regions, though, which can be at a distance from the gene of interest, can bind transcription factors, and this will cause a more stable, long-term expression of the gene. This is the kind of regulation via the enhancers, which causes stable differentiation of cells by causing them to express certain genes that define them. Okay, let's wrap up this section. DNA and RNA are made of nucleotide bases, purines and pyrimidines, that are connected with phosphodiester linkages. 
DNA is a double helix with two antiparallel strands held together by hydrogen bonds between the base pairs. DNA replication is a complicated process requiring lots of enzymes. The leading strand is synthesized smoothly from a single RNA primer, and the lagging strand is synthesized in bits called Akazaki fragments, each with its own RNA primer, which later needs to be removed and replaced with DNA. This leads to having an area at the end of the lagging strand, the telomere, that shortens with every replication and eventually causes destabilization of the chromosome and cell senescence, when it can't safely replicate again. DNA is composed of genes, sequences that are transcribed to RNA, which can be mRNA, which gets translated into proteins, or can be other forms of RNA that have regulatory or synthetic functions. RNA transcription is initiated by transcription factors binding to promoters or enhancers, and the translation occurs on the ribosomes, where tRNAs carrying amino acids in anticodon sequences bind to the codons in the mRNA and build a chain of amino acids, which will then fold and become a functional protein. Okay. That's it for now. Thank you so much for listening. Please feel free to reach out to me over email, medtogether26 at gmail.com with comments, questions, concerns, or just to say hi, and I will respond as soon as possible.